Well, as the story is told, John has landed in prison. John the Baptist. His preaching and teaching offended the authorities. In particular, he has stirred up trouble for King Herod, accusing Herod of stealing his own brother's wife, among other infidelities and corruptions. Every chance he had, John lambasted Herod. But he was popular with the people. They listened to him. As we learned last week, they flocked to him in the desert. They took him seriously. Jesus took him seriously. Remember, it was John who baptizes Jesus in the Jordan. Now John is a political prisoner. He had kept up his tirades against the powerful tyrant who could no longer tolerate John's influence among the people. And as you know, as the story is told, Jesus will follow a similar path. He too will become a political prisoner. For now, John sits in a cell with a lot of time on his hands, and, and sitting there, he wonders if he has got it right. John questions whether Jesus is the right guy after all. This is pretty understandable, I think. It's a poignant human moment in the gospel story. John, the colorful, tough-talking advance man for Jesus, now in a very tough spot, has some doubts. Is Jesus the one or not? He needs a little reassurance. And so he sends several friends to ask Jesus directly about whether or not John should pin his hope on Jesus. Now, I I like this interlude in the gospel quite a lot. It rushed by as you heard it read. It doesn't... You don't dwell on it a lot, but I think it's an important thing to lift out. In part, that's because I can identify with John here. I've had some doubts from time to time, especially in my early years doing this gig. I cast my fate with Jesus four or five decades ago, but... Once in a while, when circumstance squeezed me hard, I wondered about that. Wondered about how my loyalty was supposed to be rewarded or or at least confirmed in some tangible way. I would tell you that my doubts served me well, though. Oddly, I've come to see them as servants of hope. Often we we think of our doubts as the antithesis of hope, but in that we fail to take account of the yearning behind the questions, the anticipation and forward momentum in deep, even anguished, authentic, sincere railing and doubting. How do we learn anything at all if, if we don't question what we think we know already? As in John's case, it's 
generally the context of our present circumstance that drives our doubts and questions. We want to know that our current situation, our actual lived reality, has meaning and purpose and is pointed in a useful direction. We sense that it will have meaning if the future is secure. Doesn't that seem the basis for John's question from prison? After all, he's in a life-threatening situation. Is his sacrifice well-placed? Now, what faith reveals is that the future belongs to God, which provides the greatest security there is. That's one way of summing up the entire scriptural witness from Genesis to Revelation. Fear not, the future belongs to God. Isn't that what the story says the angel Gabriel announced to Mary? Fear not, Mary, the angel says explicitly. The future is in God's hands. Embrace your present circumstance. An angel appeared to Joseph as well, who sincerely doubted the decision he previously had made about Mary. The angel said to him, Fear not, Joseph. The future belongs to God. And so, accepting, even celebrating their situation, Mary and Joseph walked into their future and, interestingly, as it turns out, ours as well, since here we all sit. Now, note that this is a much bigger thing to claim than, say, Social Security will maintain solvency or the world markets will stabilize in a positive direction, or one day you will find a loving partner after several botched attempts, or your health will be restored following a major crisis. Even though all of these are positive potential eventualities, I mean, the fact remains that one day your health will fail you. One day. But even then, in here we say, Fear not, the future belongs to God, for even death is swallowed up in God's good purpose. Trusting God with the future has the very direct opposite effect of escape from the present. Radical trust allows us to thrust ourselves into the moment, living it as though it were our last freeing us to do what must be done or ought to be done to see the truth and to act accordingly. This trust is the mother of profound hope and drives every worthwhile human cause. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, we must accept finite disappointments, but we must never lose infinite hope. We must accept finite disappointment, but we must never lose infinite hope. And you will recall that King was also a political prisoner and also martyred, which only amplifies his point. Hope of this sort drives the present into a transforming future because, as King clearly learned, standing at the manger in Bethlehem year after year, The future is God's. It always has been. It always will be. That's the message of Advent. I have been preaching for close to 40 years now. Yesterday I had the 
privilege of participating in the service of the funeral service of a woman who was near 90. She was in the first church I served, and she had four children who were all in my youth group then. It's 40 years ago. It was kind of blew me away to see them all sitting there, now in their 50s. 40 years, more than 40 years. If you were to ask me which season of the year are the hardest, is the hardest for me, I'd tell you it's this season, Advent and Christmas. There are a number of reasons for this, but chief among them is the overwhelming sense as December comes round of been there, done that, which seems to build as the years pile up. The story is overly familiar and the themes can seem cliché. But lest you think I've turned into some crabby Christmas curmudgeon, (laughs) I really have discovered something quite important over the years. It's this. The profound message of hope the ancient story holds for the ages sounds brand spanking new every single December. And that's because 300, at least 364 days have passed since the last time we were reminded. 364 days of getting up and going about our business, tuning into the news, confronting startling new information and fresh personal crises. 364 opportunities to forget what force binds the world together and keeps the universe humming and inflates our lungs with breath. At least 364 awakening opportunities to doubt or even forget that God is. Consider present conditions. I say that part of the social-political dislocation we're currently experiencing as a nation relates to the crushing change that rushes toward us through technological innovation and cultural evolution. This crushing change disrupts our world as we have known it. And while much of the effect of this dislocation lies just below conscious awareness, our national collective anxiety suggests that our emotions have already sensed what our cognition has not yet fully accepted. Namely, the near future will be irrevocably different than current conditions. No exemptions. And you see, that's the world then the Christ child enters in 2016. An anxious and fearful world riven by divisive politics and a deep yearning for a return to an overly idealized past. But friends, as we generally learn the hard way, the only direction we have available is forward. Forward can often seem opaque and scary. 
And yet for the thoughtful Christian, the way forward lies securely in God's hands. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, the psalmist wrote. During these weeks of Advent, we rehearse the radical idea that God is pleased to dwell with us, all of us, everywhere, all of the time, all of us, everywhere, all of the time. And our first response is simply to open our hands and our hearts and our minds to receive the astonishing gift of God's own self. Now, getting this right does not predict traveling an easy street ahead. It didn't for John. It didn't for Jesus either. But it does create an accurate framework for working out the details of our lives in fear and trembling. That's how Paul put it when he wrote to his friends in Philippi. And at the time he wrote it, he was a political prisoner in Rome himself, locked in a prison cell. And from that cell he wrote, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So today we're invited to consider what life might be like if we lived it as though we trusted God's future for our lives for real. For real. Again, there's no prediction that in this life, that in this, that life will be easy in all of its details, but it does ensure that any present circumstance can be embraced with confidence because the future remains secure. It belongs to God, as our lives belong to God. They begin and end in God. That's the vision that grabbed hold of Isaiah when he said, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, Be strong, do not fear, here is your God. And it's the very same vision that grabbed hold of Paul in a prison cell, and Mary and Joseph and John and Jesus, and it grabbed hold of me too along the way. And most of you as well, I imagine, notwithstanding your doubts and questions. One of the excellent reasons we, we've been brought together from so many different corners of the world, as you look around this space, you will discover that we are an astonishingly diverse group of people from all over the world. One of the reasons we've been brought together is for this simple reminder. Simple but profound. We bolster one another in our affirmation of infinite hope that God will have the day for certain.
And all that remains for us is to align ourselves with that truth. Amen.